Okay, Luke chapter 2, we're going to begin reading with verse 8, we'll read through to verse 20. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has, that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this familiar story. and We thank you for the truth that rests in this story, Father. And we look to you this morning. But Father, as we meditate on this story, that Father, you would... Bring these things to bear upon our hearts and minds afresh this morning, Father. That, uh, Father, you would be pleased to uh, touch each one of our hearts with your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Preachers have a tendency to preach about what they're thinking about. Um, I expected a chuckle out of that when I said that. And there's a couple of smiles um, I, if that's all I said, that wouldn't really make a lot of sense because some of them might say, well, I hope you're thinking about what you're saying. I hope you're not just mindlessly rambling on. Uh, what do I mean by that is, uh, you know, we, we have our study preparation going on over here, Bible study preparation, uh, sermon preparation, counseling preparation. There's a lot of work that goes on preparing for these things. You've got all that going on over here and it's, you have all that happening, but uh, there's oftentimes there are thoughts that you've got going on over here. We're all like that. We have our work and then we have thoughts that are kind of like, you know, like your computer. There's programs that are running in the background all the time. And you have these thoughts that are running in the background all the time. And uh, that's what I'm referring to. We have a tendency to, to, to that stuff that's running around in the background all the time has a tendency to find its way into, into preaching and teaching and counseling. And I'm always amazed by the providence of God in this respect. I'm always amazed by how a certain book will end up in my hands or a, a news article or maybe a theological article or maybe just a story that will end up in my hands at just the right time for a counseling session or the right time for uh, some application that we might make in a sermon somewhere or Bible study. It's really quite amazing. Um, so when I was in seminary, I had a professor who was, at that time, he was about a year away from retirement. And he made this statement. He said, you know, 
He, he asked the question, speaking from decades of pastoral experience, he, he asked the question, what do, you, what do you preach about? He answered his own question to clients. He says, you preach about what you're thinking about. And this is what he was talking about. You preach about what you're thinking about. Now, all of this is to say that I've really been thinking about reaching our culture for Christ. I, I think I mentioned that maybe last Sunday. I know I've mentioned it to several of you as we've talked and really thinking about how we can engage our our culture for Christ. And I think really lately that's probably been the predominant thought that's been going on in my, in my mind that's running in the background, really going on in everything that I do. Now, let me get this, out of, uh, let me get this right out of the way from the start. Do I think we've been somewhat effective in this so far? Yes, resounding yes. Uh, uh, absolutely, I think we have. Uh, as we think about the year 2015, God's really done a lot of things in this, uh, in this ministry, hasn't he? You, know, you think about all the changes that have taken place in the last 12 months. It's quite amazing the way God has really showered us with his grace. And, and uh, so, yeah, I think, I think the answer to that is yes. I think we have a lot of momentum, and I believe God has really shed a lot of grace upon us. But let me follow that question with another one. Do I think we could be more effective in this? And again, I have to answer that question in the same way. Yes, resounding yes. Uh, I think we stand to be more effective. Now, that obviously leads to another question. And the question is, okay, how? <laughs> how do we do this? Well, that's, 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 that's the key, isn't it? I think the text that we come to this morning has a lot to teach us along this line. And I'll be forthcoming. I mean, when I originally chose this text, I was thinking like this. I was thinking, you know, it seems too early to begin picking up back in Daniel. You know, it's just a couple of days after Christmas. We really ought to, we really ought to focus one more, just take one more message uh, before we go back into Daniel. And then that combined with the fact this is our last worship service in 2015, it's kind of maybe nice just to kind of look at where we're at and uh, where we should be headed in the future. And uh, I came to this text because of its high praise. That was what I was thinking. Let's... Let's finish the year praising God. Let's just put together a message on, on praise because we have such high praise in this text, don't we? Such high praise, uh, celestial praise, angelic praise we, we have here. But uh, as, we began, as I began to do the work of, of studying the text, and I've been over this text many times in the past, uh, really the word peace kept coming up. Because our text says a lot about peace too, doesn't it? It says a lot about peace. Well, again, we got this program running in the background. You know, how are we going to be more effective in reaching our culture and, and Christ? And, and uh, we're thinking about praise and that has led to peace. And uh, okay, let's ask ourselves a question. What does peace mean to the average person in our culture? What's that mean? And for that matter, what does any of this stuff mean? What does our Christianese mean to the people in our culture? You know what I mean by Christianese? Like when you go to the doctor and they run tests on you and then you go back to get the results of the test and he talks to you in another language. You know, like most of what he said is either Latin or Greek or a combination of both and you say to him, okay, uh, 
I don't know what that sounds like. I, I'm not sure what that sounds like. Could you give that to me in English? Or you go to the attorney and you sit down and he gives you all these law terms and okay, okay um, I, I have no idea what you just said to me. I think the longer and more time we spend in the church, the more we're prone to doing exactly that as we think about grace, faith, peace, justification, sanctification, regeneration. As we go through all of these things, as we use all of these words, what do they mean? Do they mean anything to our culture? What are the implications of this for sharing the gospel? I mean, I really invite you this morning to come alongside of me and wrestle with this with me. And, you know, really with these considerations and this invitation together, let's look at our story. It's very familiar to many of us. To some of us, it might be fairly new. Uh, so let's take a look at the story. It, it begins, it takes place after Mary has given birth to Jesus. Jesus is wrapped in swaddling cloths. He's laid in a manger. Verse 8, in the meantime, in the same region... We're told there are shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock. And we have to think that that night was pretty much a routine evening. I mean, pretty much routine, business as usual, the usual grind. Uh, That is until uh, the angel of the Lord, verse 9, appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And we see that the sight of the celestial visitor struck them with fear. I mean, the glory of the Lord shining around them struck them with terror And that's when, in verse 10, they receive this comforting news. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. There's something going on here, this good news. um, You know, the good news, the words, good news that are being translated is from the verb euangelizo, which comes from the noun euangelion. You don't need to remember that as we talk about Christian ease. I'm not sure what kind of ease that is. Maybe theologian ease or something. I don't know. But what I want you to hear is the similarity between the two words. Euangelizo and euangelion. You can hear You don't need to know Greek to know that those sound really similar. And euangelion is the word that we translate gospel. It's the word we translate good news. And that's why the ESV translators and many modern English translators translated good news because that's what it is. But what I want you to see here is the angels are using this good news in a verb. It's in an action sense. In other words, they're out gospeling is what they're doing. They're actively proclaiming the gospel. They're proclaiming the message. Uh, proclaiming the good news. And not only is it good news, it's good news Of a great joy, we're told. Now, what is this good news of a great joy? Verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, to offer credence to their message, the angel offers a sign. Verse 12. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And the ancient way of doing this was they had a square piece of cloth and they... They laid the baby in it in a a diagonal fashion and they just wrapped the cloth around the baby and they they ran these uh, swaddling bandages, these bandages around the child really tightly. And um, this actually, the ES, or the ISBE, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, says that this would have, in the ancient Near East, this would have been the child's clothes until he was about a year old. 
Uh, he would have been in swaddling cloths for about the first year of his life. And to have not done this would have been a sign of abandonment, uh, actually, in that culture. Still practiced today in many cultures. In the United States, it was, um, there's a, uh, it was a study done in the Washington University School of Medicine it said swaddled infants sleep better than unswaddled infants. Uh, but many of you, the mothers in this room, already know that, don't you? Uh, this information is for the guys, okay? Because uh, moms, they already know that stuff. Um, but at any rate, the shepherds are uh, told that in the city of David, they would find a baby wrapped in these cloths. And the great commentator, Leon Morris, he, he writes this, commentating, Commenting on this passage, he writes, In Bethlehem that night there may be a few babies in swaddling cloths, but there had only been one in a manger. They would have only found one in a manger. Uh, what is a, a manger is a feeding trough for livestock. It's not a very common place to find an infant, is it? I can, can only imagine the bacteria in that thing. Uh, so, yeah, and I, again, I'd like to stop right there because... You know, when I, when I read passages like this, and I've shared this with you before in the past, when I read passages like this, I often wonder, what's going on in heaven when this happens? What's taking place in heaven as the second person of the Trinity uh, enters into uh, this world in the person of Jesus Christ and is now wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a feeding trough out in a field somewhere? Uh, What's going on in heaven when this is taking place? And here we don't have to speculate because we are told in verse 13 that suddenly there was uh, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Those angels in heaven who have been on their face from out of eternity past praising the second person of the Trinity are now praising because they recognize that there he is, uh, wrapped in these swaddling cloths and laying in that, in that manger. That puts a new perspective on things, doesn't it? And furthermore, notice this word host. It might be a word that's unfamiliar to some of us. We're told that a multitude of the heavenly hosts uh, praising God and saying a host means an army. A host is an army, and that adds quite a dimension to this text because we're told that what appears all of a sudden is this heavenly army. An army has appeared. Now, when a very large, powerful army shows up, what does that usually mean? It usually means war, doesn't it? Who's going to go to the expense of mounting this army and dispatching it unless they mean war or at least project power? But the message here is peace. It's a message of peace. And that's what the praise is all about, isn't it? And I don't know how long the shepherds were permitted to see this angelic worship. And I don't know how long it went on after they weren't permitted to see it. But what we do know is that the shepherds, they decide to go and check this out. Off to Bethlehem they go. And we're told that they hurry off. They find Mary, Joseph... And they find Jesus lying in a manger, just as the angel had said. They told what was happened to everyone, and it was a source of wonder to them all. Uh, we're told that Mary especially treasures up these things in their heart. You see that. And then in verse 20, we find the shepherds returning to their fields, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Now, back to the question I keep finding myself asking, and I know some of you are asking this, many of you are asking this question. Okay, 
what does this mean to the average person in our culture? If we were to share this story with them, what, what does it mean? Um, you know, what, does, what does terms like the good news mean to our neighbors? What's that text mean? And what do they consider peace to be? And if they called out for a savior, what would they want saved from? Pretty simple. I guess all of this is to say is that if we were to share this story this afternoon to somebody in our culture, this story would be being shared into a cultural context. There's a context upon which people would be hearing this story. And the same thing is true with the, the, the shepherds. I mean, when the angel of the Lord made the announcements to the shepherds, I mean, he doesn't do this in a cultural vacuum. Not at all. In fact, I mean, for starters, I mean, the Savior of the world has just come into this realm, if you will, and the person of Jesus Christ. And I, he's laying in a feeding trough in a small, obscure town. And I, I think it's interesting here, just on the side, just for a moment, I think it's interesting that the angel doesn't go to some high-ranking religious leader. You, you know what I mean? We would think that, boy, I would sure think the high priest ought to know about this. Maybe some of the leaders. But that's not who the angel of the Lord comes to, is it? it comes to these shepherds. Now, again, there's a cultural context here. If we had grown up and lived in that culture, we would really find this quite amazing because shepherds couldn't be trusted, generally speaking. Shepherds weren't permitted to testify in a court of law because they were so unreliable. In fact, they were very despised and uh, considered a very low-class sort of folks. So it's quite amazing here. But these shepherds were Israelites, and as Israelites, they believed in one God. They believed in the God of Abraham. They embraced the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament today, they embraced them as the word of God. They, uh, they had a good working understanding of the holiness of God, especially after these angels had visited them. They, they definitely had a sense of the holiness of God after that. As the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were struck with the terror of it all. And they were expecting a savior. They were expecting a savior. Now, if we would have asked them, what kind of savior are they expecting? They probably would have answered in some political way uh, a savior from Roman occupation. It was probably how they would have answered. These are broad brush strokes, but that's probably how they would have answered that question. And all of this is to say that there's a cultural landscape here that the angel is dealing with. Now, when we tell this story, we don't tell it in a cultural vacuum either. When we hear information, we process information through this grid, through this lens, if you will. When we hear things, we process those things. The things that we're hearing, the information that we're taking in is colored by, by many different things as we take that information in. And, um, you know, before, you know, we begin telling the gospel to one another, we really need to be sure that we have listened I mean, I think the first thing we ought to think about as we think about communicating the gospel to our culture, we, we really need to think about listening. I think sometimes we're so um, 
excited about telling that we don't maybe listen and listening is something I don't think we're quite as good at as we used to be. Um, we, need to, we need to do more listening. According to polls that have been taken, and I spent some time surfing around on the internet trying to find the most recent polls, uh, most people, most people in our culture, in American culture, still believe in the existence of a God of some description. There's only 3% of the of Americans that would hold to an atheistic point of view, meaning they don't believe in any God at all. And about 20% of our culture um, is what we would call agnostic, where they're not sure whether they believe in a God or not. They're not sure whether God exists. So, you know, the, the remaining percentage embraces the idea that God exists and we shouldn't be surprised by that because the Apostle Paul makes it clear in Romans 1 that every human being knows that God exists. We just push that as far away as we can, don't we? That's what Paul teaches us in Romans 1 very clearly. So we all know that he exists. We just, in our unbelief, we push him away. Now, according to several polls, a majority of our culture believes the Bible to be the word of God to some degree. I was a little bit surprised by that, actually. I checked that out on a number of different polls, and uh, there's still, in our culture, there's, a, there's a, a favorable portion of our culture that still believes the Bible to be the Word of God to some degree. Uh, the commitment to this varies very widely, but uh, the book is still considered sacred by the majority of our culture. Now, back in 2009, one author compared some statistics According to him, 55% of Americans believed in angels, while only 39% believed in evolution, and still less, 36% believed in global warming, and 30%, 34% of America reported to believe in ghosts and UFOs. Um, in fact, the author seems to be a little bit condescending and appalled by the finding. Uh, he gives us a lot of information about himself when he writes, quote, It's fascinating that superstitious beliefs are outperforming hard science either despite or because of 12 years of required indoctrination of the latter. I'm not sure what to make of it, end of quote. Um, this is an interesting conclusion. As I think about listening, as we're thinking about listening, let, let's listen to this conclusion. Let's practice that. Let's exercise that a little bit. And again, I'm not interested. When, when we listen, we need to be sure that we're listening without ridicule, without poking fun, without trying to put anyone down for their beliefs. Let's just listen here. This is what he says. It's fascinating that superstitious beliefs are outperforming hard science, either despite or because of 12 years of required indoctrination of the latter. I'm not sure what to make of it. Now, we're learning a lot here. For starters, we're learning that he labels belief in angels as superstitious. That it's superstitious to believe in angels. Secondly, he labels scientific theories as supreme. It's hard science. He's making reference to scientific theories. And he's equating them with hard science. And we need to remember these are theories. And he, he, I think the most interesting thing here is he refers to a high school education as indoctrination. And that word indoctrination, nestled inside that word is the word doctrine. 
And we hear that all the time, don't we? Doctrine. What is doctrine? It's a set of beliefs. It's a set of, it's a, it's a set of beliefs that undergird our faith, isn't it? It's interesting that he would choose that word, indoctrination. Listen, there's still an enormous amount of religion taking place in our public school system. An enormous amount of religion. Uh, Darwinian evolution is a faith-based system with its own sets of doctrines. Now, since then, a more recent poll showed that 77% of Americans believe in angels. 77%. While only 65% believe in global warming. And now about 6 in 10 Americans believe in evolution. Now, something interesting about that, though. Uh, 6 in 10 believe in evolution, but only 3 in 10 believe in what we would call natural selection. Most people that embrace evolution embrace the type of evolution that occurred under God's guiding hand. Now, all of this is to say that uh, a majority of Americans do not believe that we existed as human beings since the beginning of time. Now, back to my point here, um, back to our story. When we share this story with our neighbors, this story is being processed by all these deeply held Beliefs. It's being processed. I mean, it's coming through these lenses. This is the lenses. These are broad brushstrokes here, but the people we're talking to probably believe in God in some form. Probably. Not necessarily. We have to listen to them to see. They probably hold the Bible to be sacred to some degree, but not necessarily. We have to listen to them to know. They probably believe in angels, but not necessarily we would have to listen to them in order to know. Um, let's take a couple more points here. Now, I'll wrap this all up. I'll put this together as best I can. When the angel of the Lord announces to the shepherds the good news that a Savior is born, he's doing this to a group of people that are already awaiting a Savior. They've been awaiting a Savior for centuries. You know, it's important that we remember that. What kind of savior were they awaiting? I've already, as I've already suggested, probably a political savior, but nonetheless, they were, they were awaiting a savior. Now, when our culture thinks of a savior, what do you suppose they typically have in mind? When people in our culture, when our, our, our loved ones are all over the valley, when, when they think about a savior, uh, what, what do you think they have in mind? Um, I, I'll give you a few suggestions that... that they're based on my own personal experience of sharing the gospel, and I think that first is a president that's going to fix everything. A president that's going to fix it. Although I think that's on the decline, I think. But a president is going to fix everything. Uh, yeah, I think that's on the decline. Um, folks are looking for salvation from economic oppression. When they think of a savior, I mean. When you think of a savior, by the way, you're thinking of your your... If, if, if you're to offer a savior, you're, you're to offer, you're, you're, you're looking for a solution to your biggest problem, by the way. Economic oppression. Here's another one that I've encountered many times. is salvation from the grind so that there's more freedom to pursue leisure. I think that's a really big one in our culture. Salvation from old age. Our culture is increasingly concerned about remaining young looking 
And that's very much related to salvation from death. Now, if you put some thought to that, I'm sure you would come up with many other things that I haven't come up with here. But when the angel of the Lord proclaims in high praise, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. I mean, what, what does he mean? In other words, what, what does he mean by the word peace here? When he proclaims peace, what is, what's he mean by peace? What does our culture mean by peace? If we talk about peace to our culture, what would our culture probably say? If we went to the workplace on Monday and started asking everybody, you know what, if you, you know, what does peace look like to you? I'd suggest we probably get three answers. One is, is a world without shootings. Maybe two is a world without terrorism. And maybe three is a world without guilt, without that, uh, that aspect of guilt and shame. Uh, salvation from, uh, or, or peace would be a world without, um, or a world full of peace of mind, if you will. Um, I think that's what folks are thinking. All this is to say is that peace, that peace means a world without physical threat or a world without psychological torment. Now, as we think of all of this, let's think of some common points here. I mean, there's areas of overlap. I mean, as people express their struggles in the workplace, how often do we hear that in our culture? Those of you, are, I mean, you're probably going to, that's probably going to be one of the first things you hear Monday morning is some kind of uh, venting going on about the usual grind. Okay, we have commonality here. What's that all about? In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve rebel against God, one of the curses that God pronounces upon them is that work will become what? Frustrated. You see, this is a big point of contact that we have with our culture. Some of us, I've, I've talked with some of you, you have terrible frustrations at work right now. What's that about? It's about the curse. I mean, God's promised that that's the way it's going to be. It's about the curse. Death. What about death? I mean, the whole idea of death and decay kind of bumped them together. I mean, you know, as some of us get older, you know, we start getting bumps in places we never had bumps. And uh, we do a lot of fibbing, too. We sometimes blame bumps that have always been bumps as bumps because of old age. But the truth is, if we look at some pictures, those bumps were there when we were young, too. But nevertheless, we got bumps. Um, and uh, we don't like those bumps. We want to look young again. And what about this whole thing about decay? And, and death. Well, that's also an intrusion in this world brought about what, by what? By rebellion. The Bible actually prizes gray hair. I don't know if you knew that or not. I get in a lot of trouble when I talk like this. And I'll probably get in trouble this morning too. But um, gray hair is a sign of wisdom. Um, What's not so much the gray hair that's the big deal. It's just the fact that, you know, the, the, the Bible looks up to elders. It looks up to people who have walked this world for a while. Why? Because they've had experience in areas where younger folks have not had experience yet. And contrary to your average 20-year-old or 25-year-old, uh, 
yeah, parents do know a little bit about something, right? It's a little bit of a joke. You're allowed to laugh. <laughs> so we think about uh, terrorism. Of course, that's complete rebellion against God. And as we think about guilt, guilt is the natural consequence of sin. All right, we think about common points here that we have. Let's consider where the work needs done. I mean, if all I care about is really the fact that the workplace is frustrated, if all I care about is the fact that I'm looking older and I don't want to look older, if all I care about is I don't have the leisure that I want, if all I care about is, um, you know, being free from the threat of uh, physical harm, or all I care about is guilt and shame, then all I care about are the symptoms of the problem. Now listen, without the grace of God, that is all I'm going to care about. That is all I'm going to care about. We need the grace of God in order to take us to the root of the problem. What is the root of the problem? The root of the problem is our mass rebellion against God. That's what has brought in all of these things. Now, how do we get there in our culture? When we're talking with people in our culture, how do we communicate that? Well, here I have some suggestions. Uh, when we hear folks struggle under the grind, we have an opportunity to lead them to the root of the problem. When we hear people complain at the workplace... We have an opportunity right there to go to the root of the problem. You want to know why the workplace is the way that it is? And you're going to have people, I tell you, you, you ask that question, they're all going to gather around you. They're going to want to hear the answer. And where do you go? You go to Genesis 3. It's, it's because of the curse. We've all rebelled against God, and it's because we've rebelled against God. Um, yes, work, work has become frustrated. I mean, that's the biblical answer to this. Don't expect uh, an instantaneous conversion, okay? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's not our job. That's the job and the work of the Holy Spirit. He may do that. Let's not do this thinking, oh, he never would. I made that mistake one time. I counseled a young woman. Uh, she was suffering with such anxiety, she wouldn't even come out of her house. And me and another woman uh, from the church went down and a counselor gave her a basic gospel presentation from Isaiah 6 and... Uh, uh, the, the next week, we agreed to meet again. And when we met with her the second time, she was talking like a believer. And I, I went home confused and perplexed. And I remember praying. I remember, Lord, man, she sounds like she's come to faith. And it, and it dawned on me. I was about halfway home and it dawned on me. It was like, well, Dooley, you shared the gospel with her. Shouldn't you expect her to come to faith having shared the gospel with her? But I guess I'm, a lot of us are so conditioned, we share the gospel all the time, but we don't see that right away. Sometimes it happens right away. This woman is still walking with the Lord today. So don't think it can't happen. But you see, by going to Genesis 3, you're going to the bad news, which is the hardest thing for us to get to, isn't it? Before we share the... You remember a couple weeks ago when I said, before we share the bad news... Before we share the good news, we've got to share the bad news. Everyone wants to share the good news. And the good news falls flat because no one is bothered to share the bad news. The good news makes no sense without the bad news. Why is the workplace a struggle? It's because of the curse. We've rebelled against God. I like to use we when I have these conversations because I include myself in this. We've rebelled against God. Because we've rebelled against God, God has cursed, uh, he has cursed the workplace. 
It's a great place, point of contact for sharing the gospel. When sto- folks are struggling with the aging process, we need to lead them to the root of the problem. We have the opportunity to tell them death and decay are the results of our rebellion against God. That's, that's what it is. Uh, that, that's, that's exactly what it is. When we hear the news of another shooting or terrorist attack, we need to point to the root of the problem. What's the, what's the root of the problem? It's evil. Yeah, I had this conversation recently with a, with a friend of mine. You know, he's, was, he just really was bugged. I mean, he was really, really bugged by the San Bernardino uh, incident out there. Just really, and it was a great point for me to begin to talk about the gospel. I mean, he was really fired up about that. And he wanted to know why. And he kept saying, I got my, my theories. And I, he was expressing his theories. And, and I said to him, I said, listen, you have to understand that this is evil. Now, you know, he wouldn't embrace that. I tried several times. It's evil to open fire on a group of people that have no idea you're coming, aren't armed, and aren't even, I mean, women and children and kids and the like. It's cowardly and it's evil. He wasn't willing to receive the the evil part. You're going to discover that if you start talking about it. That people don't want to go there. But listen, the Bible makes it abundantly clear. That's what's going on, doesn't it? How about um, guilt and shame? When we come along, someone is full of guilt and shame. We need to take them to the root of the problem. A lot of times, I've done a lot of counseling in this area. And I can tell you right now. When you generally speaking, whenever you sit down to talk with someone who's burdened with guilt and shame, they usually want nothing more than to get rid of the emotion of guilt and shame. That's all the further that they want to go. Okay, that's the same thing as going into the emergency room with a terrible, with whooping cough and only wanting rid of the cough. Of course, we want rid of the cough, but the cough is a symptom. It's a symptom of something that's far greater than the, than the coughing, isn't it? You've got to get to the root of the problem. What's the root of the problem? You've heard me say this, and I've said this many times in counseling. Well, someone says, I just feel so guilty. I feel shame. Why? Tell me what's going on. And they tell me. And I, I say, well, I, I, I know why you're feeling guilty and, and ashamed. And they'll be, why? I said, because you are guilty. And really, that's the consequence of, of this. When we're, when we're guilty, we feel shame. Just like when we, you know, if you, if you smash your finger, you say, my finger hurts. Why does it hurt? Well, it's because I smashed it. Well, it's supposed to do that. It's alarming you. Don't, hey, quit. Could you imagine if kids, could you imagine if 12-year-old boys didn't have feeling in their hands? I Half of them would be going, wow, look at this. Boom, boom, boom. They'd be smashing their fingers to show off for their buddies. It's a mechanism that God has given us to, to, to uh, alert us that something is wrong. Listen, this is a great opportunity to share the gospel. I've seen people come to faith in Christ through this mechanism. Many times, actually. I got this guilt and this shame. What's causing it? Go to the root of the problem. Rebellion against God. Now, we don't want to leave anybody... There, We don't want to just share rebellion against God. It would be very cruel to tell people rebellion against God without telling them the cure. 
You see, as we establish that, now a Savior makes sense, doesn't it? A Savior makes sense. Of course a Savior makes sense. We're in a position to explain peace. What do we need peace? We need peace from this curse. This is the next president. It's trivial in comparison to the curse. We need peace from the curse. You know, John 3.16 is on the billboards, but I've never seen John 3.36 on the billboards. I'm not sure we're ever going to see John 3.36 on the billboards. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's the problem. And once we understand that that's the problem, really nothing else really. Yeah, there's other problems, but nothing like this. What does it mean to have the wrath of God upon you? It means you're hell bound. That's what it means. We're going to go to work tomorrow, tomorrow morning with people that are currently on a path to hell. That's a pretty significant problem. If we saw somebody playing too close to a 75-foot cliff, we would try to warn them, wouldn't we? We've grown so comfortable with people playing inches away from that cliff that we think, oh, I don't want to offend them, or I don't want to, man, I don't know I want to say that to them. I, I don't know. You be the judge. Peace involves the removal of this wrath. Peace is being brought into a loving relationship with God through Christ. Listen, that's not how we think in our unbelieving state. That's not what, that's not even, we're not even near that. That's, uh, the category that we have for peace doesn't look anything like that. We've got work to do in order to condition that that's what peace is. Now the good news makes sense that so God God has come in the person of Jesus Christ to take care of our biggest problem, not our second biggest problem, our biggest problem. What does he do? He comes in the person of Jesus Christ, and you know the story. He lives that perfect life, goes to the cross, and dies for what? He dies to reverse the curse. He dies to lift the curse. It's possible for us to go into the workplace tomorrow and not not go in under that curse. Will we find work frustrating? Yes, we will. Will we find it as frustrating as we would if we didn't have faith in Christ Jesus? No. Why? Well, because we know Christ has lifted this curse. We know that we're going to deal with it for a short period of time, then it's going to be over. We know that it's temporary. And we've got Jesus walking with us as we go through it. It makes all the difference and the world, and this is really good news. So I think in many cases, this is a, a new and fresh way of looking at things. I mean, we're looking for points of commonality, and we're presenting the gospel in those points of commonality. Now, I pray that the Holy Spirit will give us wisdom and insight in this as we embark in 2016. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you and praise you, Father, for your word, as we think about this story that's so familiar, we recognize that as Lord, as you dispatched the angel to communicate uh, the great news, the good news, the gospel uh, to the shepherds that, Father, these words did not fall in any kind of cultural vacuum, but they were processed and they were 
they were heard. Um, in the same way, Father, we, when we share the gospel, we recognize, Lord, that these words don't fall into a vacuum. And Father, as we wrestle, as we think about how to be more effective communicators of the gospel, Father, we pray that you would help us to listen and help us to get a better understanding of our loved ones out there. And help us, O oh Father, to bring the clear teaching of the Bible uh, right in to the struggles of life, Father, whether they be the struggles of the workplace, which are so prominent everywhere, or whether they be the struggles with decay and aging, or they be the struggles with dysfunction, or the struggles of guilt and shame, Father. Lord, we ask that you would really bring us up another notch, that we could become more effective in sharing the gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.